As we read the uh, verses that Tim read for us earlier, uh, verses 3 through 14, it deals with the issue of predestination primarily. Last week we did one and two, and I'm going to review that very quickly. Um, Verse one and two, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we use that, um, grace and peace, and we went to, if we turn back to Galatians chapter five, just a couple pages to your left, we went to verse 22, and we talked about the fruit, singular, of the spirit is love. And everything after that, joy and peace, is simply a byproduct of um, the fruit of the spirit. And again, it's singular. So the fruit of the spirit is love. The attributes, if you remember, um, we went to First uh, Corinthians 13, which gives us a definition of um, that love. Uh, Paul wrote this epistle. It's called one of the four um, prison epistles, which were written while he was in prison in Rome between 60 and 62 AD. And uh, we made a point in 1 Corinthians 13 that the word love there was agape. We have one word that describes love. Um, You can love your wife, and you say, I love my wife, and I love my car. And um, we use the same word to describe two completely different sets of emotions. Well, the Greeks have three um, definitions, or three words that describe love. One is eros. We get our word erotic from it. It's sensual love. Phileo. Um, which is brotherly love. We use the example of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then we have the word agape, or as some people say, agape. And that's what's in reference to here when it says the fruit of the spirit is agape, the agape love, and its attributes that are clearly seen. So that's a little bit of a, a review. And we only did two verses And now we're going to pick it up in verse 3, where I I just want to read 3 and 4 and do a little sidetrack here. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I just want to look at verse four for a second and have you turn to Psalm 139. It says, he chose you when? Before the world was ever created. And in Psalm 139, David makes mention of this, picking it up in verse 13. He says, you who have formed my inward parts, you have covered me in my mother's womb. 
and um, the debate today, the all-out assault on abortions, uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned. Our whole world is overturned, and um, our country is overturned. Big debate, when does life begin? My argument is before conception, before the womb, because it says so here. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lower parts of the earth. You saw my substance yet being unformed. You knew me, and you knew my parts, my beings, and you saw my substance yet being unformed, and in your books they are all written. Even before you were consumed, conceived, um, uh, the, the days of your life were all laid out before you. Now, the title of the message this morning is predestined. And I'll be getting into that, but I wanted to stop here and point out that um, all of the days were laid out and God knew them. You could say he predestined them. But here's where the debate begins. Let's go back to, oh, before I go any farther, I have to say this. This morning we will dive in to probably the most debated doctrine in the scriptures. Predestination and eternal security, man's free will versus God's will for us. Can I say that again? What we have here is our subject is gonna be predestination uh, and eternal security We call it Arminianism versus Calvinism, and we'll get into that in detail. So man's free will versus we don't have a free will, and it's only God's free will for us. But before we begin, I told you this is, I believe, by far and away the most debated doctrine in the scripture And no matter, some of you right now are saying, well, I know where I stand, because I've had this position for a long time, and no matter what you say, you're not gonna change my mind. So let me begin with this. I'm gonna ask you a favor. Please at least listen to both sides of these doctrines, Arminianism and Calvinism. And to do so, Pastor Chuck put a little, little booklet that I'm gonna be referring to often this morning, along with a couple books from Dave Hunt that I'll be reading from. Um, um, And so I want you to be open to both sides on the issues of Arminianism versus Calvinism. Pastor Chuck wrote a track booklet. It's called um, Calvinism, Arminianism, and the Word of God. Um, Some of you are are new to Calvary Chapel, and uh, we're distinct in some ways in that, um, I'll give you an example here. Um, 
Without exception, Calvary Chapel has taken strong stands for a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we're strong supporters of Israel, okay? There are other um, people that don't have that pre-trib view that go to Calvary Chapel, and you're welcome to be here. Um, I'm not gonna be teaching that view from the pulpit, but I'm not gonna ask you to leave the church either. We go on to read that um, uh, basically Calvary chapels have been known to strike a balance between extreme or controversial theological issues that have often caused division rather than unity in the body of Christ. Calvary chapels have no desire to be divisive or dogmatic in areas where Bible believers and teachers have disagreed However, it's important to state as clearly as possible the doctrinal basis of our fellowship and unity with one another, especially in the area of pastoral leadership. While we welcome believers who disagree with us in our fellowship, we do encourage a measure of doctrinal understanding and unity among other pastors who teach the truth of God's word. I'll give you an example. Um, we feel, as a Calvary Chapel, we're a balance between born-again Baptist people, uh, but yet they don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then the other extreme would be Pentecostals who, who go as far to say, unless you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, you're not saved. So... We are right in the middle. How so? Well, we believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We do not believe they passed away. But at the same time, we want to present a healthy balance. If you go to a Pentecostal church that says you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, um, uh, we don't allow that here. And I've talked to people who are new and they decide they don't know so. First uh, Corinthians 14 clearly says that do not exercise the gift of tongues if there's going to be if you're meeting in a place where there's going to be non-believers or people just visiting checking checking us out or watching us live stream and Paul gives his reasons he says he's they're going to think you're crazy that's the word that's what he says they're going to think you're mad and that that's that so where where do we stand in this right in the middle we're a balance between the Baptists, who are our brothers in Christ, and yet they do not hold to um, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're a balance between the extreme Pentecostal groups who would go as far to say that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. We don't believe that. First uh, Corinthians 12, last couple of verses says, do all speak in tongues? The answer is no. So without getting too much, I'm I'm taking a little time because I want to give a little background of the balance. There's about 17, 1800 Calvary chapels worldwide. And um, um, these are what we call our doctrinal distinctives or things that we would hold to. All right, I ask you to be patient with me and listening as we debate, it's not a debate, but present to you just what is Arminianism and what is Calvinism. 
But before I do, I'm going to read this twice this morning. In the beginning, and this is how Chuck closes this little booklet. He puts it like this. It is not easy to maintain the unity of the spirit among us on these matters. The matters he's referring to are Arminianism and Calvinism. It seems that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are like two parallel lines that do not seem to intersect within our finite minds. God's ways are past finding out. And the Bible warns us to lean not on our own understanding. To say what God says in the Bible, no more, no less, it's not always easy, comfortable, or completely understandable, but scripture tells us that the wisdom from above will be loving and kind toward all, seeking the unity of the believers, not trying to find ways to divide and separate from one another. May God help us all to love each other, uh, to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Jesus has forgiven us in difficult doctrinal manners. Uh, may we have gracious attitudes and humble hearts desiring most of all to please him, him who has called us to serve him in the body of Christ. And then he says, discussion and capital letters, yes. Disagreement, capital letters, yes. Division, capital letters, no. And he goes on to say, I'd rather have a right attitude and uh, be wrong on my doctrine because my, my doctrine can be changed. But if I'm so embedded in this doctrine, I won't be flexible to hear what the other side has to say and actually have an attitude about it that would cause me not to like you that much or you not to like me that much. So as we get into this this morning, um, we are in um, the book of Ephesians. So let's go to um, and look at the first one this morning. I was able to put up, we'll be able to put up on the screen, not now, I'm going to talk about um, Armenianism first of all. Uh, And as we speak, by the time the service is over, the five points of Armenianism you'll be able to actually pick up and take home with you. Um, what What I was able to do is get the five points of Calvinism and I will actually put those on the screen up here. So this morning, let's first of all look at, um, well, let me introduce you to the two co-founders of Armenianism and, um, and John Calvin and Calvinism. And I'm quoting again from Chuck's book. Perhaps no issue is as important or potentially divisive as the doctrine of salvation reflected in the debate between the followers of John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, and those of Jacob Herman, 1560 to 1609, uh, best known by his Latin uh, form of his last name, Arminius, thus Arminianism. Since the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, Christian churches and leaders have disagreed over such issues as depravity, 
God's sovereignty, human responsibility, election, predestination, eternal security, and the nature and the extent and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Although trained in the Reformed tradition, we'll talk about um, Arminius right now, Arminius had serious doubts about the doctrine of sovereign grace as taught by the followers of John Calvin. He was a pastor of the Reformed Congregation in Amsterdam in 1588, but during his 15 years of ministry there, he began to question many of the conclusions of the Calvinists. He left the pastorate, he became a professor of theology at the University of Leiden, It was his series of lectures on election and predestination that led to a revolt and a tragic controversy. After his death in 1609, his followers developed uh, in 1610 and they outlined the five points of Arminianism. This uh, document was a protest against the doctrine of the Calvinist and was submitted to the state of Holland in 1618. A national synagogue of, uh, or synod of the church was conveyed in the city of Dort, D-O-R-T, to examine the teachings of Arminius in the light of scripture. And after 154 sessions lasting seven months, the five points of Arminianism were declared to be heretical. After the synod, many of the disciples of Arminius, such as Hugo Gortus, were imprisoned or banished. When John Wesley took up some of the teachings of Arminianism, the movement began to grow and it affected the Methodists tradition as well as the beliefs of most Pentecostal and charismatic churches. But that's where it began. So I'm introducing you to Arminius right now. And what I'm about to present to you that you'll be able to pick up on your way out. What are the five points? Uh, Each one of them, I'm only going to give you a paragraph for the definition. And there will be times I'll be having you turn to Uh, scriptures that will back up some of these statements on both sides. Okay, so the first one is um, the five points of Arminianism. The first one would be free will. And um, Arminius believed that the fall of man was not total, maintaining that there was enough good left in man for him to will to accept Jesus Christ into salvation. Well, there's a couple problems with this and some good stuff with with this. Uh, The Bible says that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Amen? So I could be one of these guys in one of these 154 sessions saying, I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that Paul said there's nothing good in us. Well, his argument was, no, there's enough good in us to recognize good from evil. I'll give you an example. Your conscience. Even before you were born again, you still had a conscience. You knew if you stole something, it was wrong. 
Why? Because your conscience told you so. And then what I agree with here is that um, his argument, if he would have left the first part out, it would have been perfect. That uh, one of the main points of Arminianism is that man has a free will to accept or reject Jesus Christ for salvation. So that's number one. Now, number two, conditional election. Arminius believed that election was based on the foreknowledge of God as to who would believe. A man's act of faith was seen as a condition for his being elected to eternal life because we've been predestined. Uh, since God foresaw him exercising his free will in response to Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, with me please, to First um, Peter chapter one. I'll give you a moment to get there. David said he was, the Lord knew him before he was even formed and all the days were set before him. And um, the chapter that we're going to be reading today definitely is taking a position that you were predestinated. And um, Arminianism believed that you were predestined, but if we read verse 2, it says we were elected in chapter 1 of First Peter, but according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I raise the question, is there anything that God doesn't know? The answer is no. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. So he predestined you. Why? Because he knew you would choose him. He knows all things. So it is biblical to say that you were predestinated. But how? According to the foreknowledge of God. He knew what you were going to do, saying yes or no with him. So the Armenian argument is, yes, you have free will. But you're still predestined according to the foreknowledge of God because God knows everything. Everybody tracking with me so far? Okay, so that's the second point of, um, of our Armenianism. The third is universal atonement. Arnimus held the, that redemption was based on the fact that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everyone, and that the Father is not willing that any should perish. The death of Christ provides the grounds for God to save all men, but each must exercise his own free will in order to be saved. I could not agree with him any more. Especially, he backs it up with scripture, um, by saying, not willing that any should perish. And that's not the view of the Calvinists, and you're gonna see that in just a minute. So God loves the whole world. He died for the sins of the world, and whosoever will, that implies what? Free will. Whosoever will, you're a whosoever, I'm a whosoever. And you have the ability to exercise your free will, and it's available to everybody. 
This is different than Calvinism. And uh, they take an opposite view on this. All right. Um, did I read that one? Unstructable uh, grace. Arnimus believed that since God wanted all men to be saved, that he sent the Holy Spirit to woo all men to Christ, but since man has absolute free will, he is able to resist God's will for his life. He believes that God, God's will to save all men can be frustrated by the finite will of man. He also taught that man exercises his own will first and then is born again. I can see where they would have had some problems with this when he says that the Holy Spirit was sent to woo. But really, when you do a a study on the sending of the Holy Spirit, by the way, this is uh, coming to my mind from men's Bible study, or men's prayer yesterday. We began the New Testament, where Matthew, we cracked out the first five chapters. But in it, we have the first words of Jesus, the very first thing he said after he was baptized by John the Baptist. And the first word of Jesus that he ever said after being baptized was what? Repent is the very first word that Jesus ever used. And then he went into the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by the devil. And uh, so to say he was wooed, well, the other side of that coin is that's true too. It says it's the love of God that leads a person to salvation. And um, uh, in Genesis 6, before the flood, he says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Strive over what? Doing what's right and doing what's wrong. And so way back in Genesis, we see um, people striving with the Lord. Um, the day of Pentecost, uh, 3,000 people were saved. And, but there were more than 3,000 people that were there. And so some believed the gospel and were saved, and some did not and exercised their free will and said, nope, I'm gonna do my own thing. No, God's gonna tell me what I can and can't do and have that sort of an attitude. But he clearly uh, talks about um, um, God's struggling and, and being frustrated with the finite of man because this is really what happens. When you're presented with the gospel, with, with the truth. There's that conviction. Remember when Stephen preached his first sermon? And he did it with such authority <laughs> that it said Jesus who was in heaven actually stood up. He's always you know, sitting at the throne of God. No, this was the first martyr. And Jesus is standing up after they stoned Peter. But before they stoned Peter, when he was preaching the gospel, it says they were cut to the heart. And that, what does that mean? means they were convicted because Jesus came to die for my sins. Oh, God knows I'm a sinner, huh? Hmm. Yep, well, I know that too. And then he gave them the good news and those who didn't want to hear it stoned Peter. Ah, stoned Peter, stoned Stephen. So Stephen was the first martyr and um, he got a standing ovation in heaven by the Lord himself for taking his stand for what he did. All right.
Uh, the fifth and final one for Arminianism is if man cannot be saved by God unless it's man's will to be saved, then man can, cannot continue in salvation unless he continues his will to be saved. The idea here is, well, let me fit, um, let me just stop here and comment on this. The idea here is, if it was your will to accept the Lord, um, then you still have a free will. And uh, with that free will, there's, we're going to be going to scriptures this morning that will confirm, and I personally believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God. I believe that. And if you ask me if I'm eternally secure, I'll say yes. And then I'll say, but I'm not sure about you. <laughs> because I don't know your heart. And being in ministry as long as I've had, I've known many born again, gifted, spirit-filled people that have walked away from the Lord. And I'm gonna be giving you example, personal example, one in particular this morning. So the implication here is this big little word, if, in the Bible that you hear over and over and over again. You're saved if you continue. And uh, we'll get into the other words that will bring in the idea here that you can walk away from your salvation after knowing the Lord. This is probably the biggest divisive difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. Moving on, um, I would like to read uh, a little bit about John Calvin and his five points, and I'll put that on the screen at this point. And uh, those in the Reformed tradition who answered the teachings of the Arminians, they chose a word for Calvinism and what they believe in. They call it TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. It's acrostic to summarize the answer to the five points of Armenianism, and um, I'm sure people are going to be wanting this, so we'll have these uh, made up so you'll be able to um, get a view of them also. And please remember, keep this in context. The verses that we read this morning pertain to um, predestination, that you were preordained before the foundation of the world. And um, now I'll give you John Calvin's view and then what they call the five points of Calvinism. Number one, total depravity. And we read here, the Calvinist believes that man is in absolute bondage to sin and Satan, unable to exercise his own will to trust in Jesus Christ without the help of God. In other words, you don't have a say in it. Um, John 3.16, if you're taking notes, is just one of many places that says God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not be saved. The ball's in your court. The work's been done. But what Calvin is saying is that you don't have free will. That God is the one that has the free will 
who determines who will be saved and who will not be saved, and you're out of the picture completely. All right? Unconditional election, number two. The Calvinists believe that that foreknowledge is based upon the plan and purpose of God and that election is not based upon the decision of men but the free will of the creator alone. And that's why I took you to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that you were predestinated according to God's foreknowledge. And there's so many places in the Bible that shows us that uh, we exercise our free will on a regular daily basis. But what he's coming right out and saying is you have no free will. God predestined it, and it was his free will to make that decision. Do you see the difference between the two? This is a major one. All right, unconditional election. The Calvinists believe that the foreknowledge is based upon the plan and purposes of God, and that election is not based upon the decision of man, but the free will of the creator alone. And so that's unconditional election lines up quite a bit with the first one. And then I want to comment on limited atonement. I think this is um, the worst of all of them. It's called irresistible grace. The Calvinists believe that the Lord possesses irresistible grace that cannot be obstructed. They taught that the free will of man is so far removed from salvation that the elect are regenerated, made spiritually alive by God, even before expressing faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. He is totally depraved person, wasn't made alive by the Holy Spirit, such as calling on God would be impossible. Again, no choice in the matter, that God will woo you and win you in, and you won't be able to resist. And that's um, uh, point number four. In other words, if you follow that line of reasoning, and that only he has the ability to say, of all the people that have ever existed, that some have been predestined to go to heaven. Well, what's the logical thought that goes along with that? If some have been predestined to go to heaven then how do you finish the sentence? Some have been predestined to go to hell. Okay, well that's where Dave Hunt had enough and that's where he wrote and he sums up his view on Calvinism in this book right here just by the title. What love is this? That says it all. You don't even have to read the book. It says the whole thing. I'll be quoting from this in just a little bit which is an expert. It's called John Calvin's Tyrannical Kingdom and just what kind of person John Calvin really was. But um, to me, this is the biggest issue at all, that the God that I know would actually create a human being like David, knew him before he was even in his mother's womb, with the purpose and plan, I'll create this person and set out all the days of his life, and then when he dies, he goes to hell, because it's been predicted ahead of time, predestination. And um, uh, this to me is a big one because um, God is willing that what? None should perish. The Bible clearly teaches that. And it completely goes against what I 
read against the fourth point of the five points of Calvinism. The fifth one here is a, a perseverance of the saints. The Calvinists believe that salvation is entirely the work of the Lord and that man has absolutely nothing to do with it. I agree with that part. With the process, the saints will preserve because God will see to it that he will finish the work that he has begun. Um, well, that's true, but it certainly is in some contradiction what you just said in Irresistible Grace. So these are the uh, five points of Calvinism, and can you understand why it is probably the most debated um, doctrine in the Bible? Because you have those that are thoroughly entrenched, and that's why I wanted to read to you from the beginning, do me a favor, be open this morning, understand what the five points are on both sides, and when all is said and done, disagree, go ahead. Argue about it? Go ahead. Divide over it? No. We can agree to disagree. I can wear a t-shirt that says, I'm a Calvinist. Or I can wear a t-shirt that says, I'm an Arminist. And I love you anyway, man. (laughs) And that's the idea that that, uh, a Calvary Chapel position would be in this area. Now I'm gonna get into personal scriptures this morning. Um, the first one is in the idea that God created people um, and predestined them to hell. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. And let's look at the church of Sardis. And I'll, this is where the debate and the arguments, when they get into an in-depth study between these two groups... Um, the church of Sardis um, in chapter 3 these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars I know your works and you have a name that you are alive but you're dead be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for I have not found your works perfect before God who is he talking to? he's talking to a church And he's telling his church that um, uh, you better be watching and you better strengthen the things that are remaining. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I come upon you. But you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now verse five, for he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Well, that sure brings up a question. Um, What does it mean, block your name out of the book of life? And here it's implying, he's speaking to a church and my understanding of it is that your name is put in the book of life when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then it says in Revelation 20, in the judgment, as everybody is judged, it says that everybody whose name was not found written in the book of life was casted to the lake of fire. 
So the question that rises here, why would he even say it? Why bring it up at all? Unless it was possible that they walk away from the Lord. Strengthen the things that remain. Repent. Get back to the right relationship. Just like if you turn the page and go back to Ephesus, he says the same thing. He says, you got all these good things going to you, but you left your first love. Didn't lose it, you left it. In other words, you of your own free will, you chose to put me in second place to all these other things. And then he goes on to say that if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Well, what is a lampstand? He says, well, the lampstands are the seven churches. He says, or else. Well, what's the implication there? I won't be there. I think I quoted Peter and Gordon. I'm not gonna stay in a world that, how's that go again? I won't stay in a world without love. Yeah, that's the same thing with the, with the church. This is supposed to be a love fest and um, not a grudge fest, not a doctrinal debate test. You believe that? Eh, fine, I don't. You mid-trip? Fine. I'm not, and I won't teach it. You can be wrong if you want to. I'd like to get the last word in on that one. But I have strong convictions on that, very strong convictions, and I'm not gonna change on it. But I'll still love you as a brother if you're a mid-tribber, or a post-tribber for that matter, as long as you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Amen? Good, please, for an amen. So um, the next place I'd like you to turn to is um, Hebrews chapter six, which is by far and away the most debated and controversial doctrinal statements by Paul to the Hebrews on this particular issue. As a matter of fact, if you would go to most commentaries, and when you get to Hebrews chapter six, you know everybody knows what a Bible commentary is, right? good commentators that comment on on what the scriptures are saying. What you will find when you get to Hebrews chapter six is they won't comment on it at all. They skip right over it because it's so controversial. There's some that'll make statements on it, but by far, in a way, the majority of Bible commentators just skip right over the verses four through six in Hebrews six. All right, he's writing to Hebrews, so they're Jewish believers, okay? Let's read verse one. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, outlaying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and the doctrines of baptism, laying out of hands, the two baptisms, baptism in water and baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are the ABCs that every Christian should know. He says, but you guys are staying and that's all you're talking about. I want you to grow up a little bit. I want you to go a little deeper into your walk with the Lord. And then he goes on and says in verse four, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Is everybody following me? They've been enlightened. Um, They've tasted the Holy Spirit. Uh, They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come. Here's that big little word, if. 
if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Might I add, as you think this one through, it clearly tells me that he's speaking to Christians. He's telling them to grow up and get past your ABCs. Um, Why? Because you've tasted and become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And they know the word of God and and the powers to come. These are born again believers. And then that word if. If they fall away. What does that imply? It implies that it's possible, even though nothing can separate you from the power of God and you've been sealed, as we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Here is scriptures that clearly talk about Christians that can walk away. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. Oh, I can. I can. I can walk away. I guess at this point, I'm going to introduce you to a man named Charles Templeton. I'm going to put his picture up on the screen. Read a little bit about Charles here. That's not the one. I might have to do it from memory. I don't see it here. What do you do with it? I'll do that my best I can to remember. I'll tell you who he is. This is Charles Templeton. Um, he ministered in Canada as an evangelist in the 40s and 50s. Billy Graham was his best friend. He would have 30,000 people weekly at his crusades. He did this for 10 years. Let that sink in, okay? And uh, his name is Charles Templeton, and I'm stealing this from Pastor Chuck because this is one of the stories that Chuck will tell when, it, when the debate comes up, well, I'm sealed, so how can I be unsealed? How can I walk away? Well, um, he was a brilliant man, 30,000 weekly at his crusades, more than Billy Graham at the time. They were best friends. Um, he was extremely wealthy. in the 40s and 50s is a lot of money. And then he started to lean upon his own understanding and he had a big problem with creation to the point that he said everybody knows that it took millions of years for the universe and the world to be created. And I have a problem with the word of God. And so after 10 years, he wrote a book The title of the book is Why I Left God. You can Google it. I had it in my notes somewhere here, somewhere in my Bible. And uh, our, is it here? Do yourself a favor. His name is Charles Templeton, and you can uh, back up what I'm about to say by just looking it up for yourself. And, um, um, there's something happens to people when they have too much money. Doesn't the Bible tell us to warn those who are rich? Why? Because you can start trusting in your riches instead of trusting in the Lord. The other th- danger is leaning upon your own understanding. Oh, the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. 
his intellect had a problem with that. And he basically said, everybody knows, and he argued in the article that I have, there's a debate going on between Billy Graham and him that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he says, no, he didn't. That's ridiculous. So his human leaning upon his own understanding, um, he wrote the book, he left the ministry, and uh, the book is Why I Left God. And he's openly, and Chuck is using it for those that have the debate, because you can see the argument on both sides now, that uh, the Calvinists believe nothing. You're sealed. Once you're sealed, you can't be unsealed. I always think of the opening of the seven seals. How do you get unsealed? Well, with a letter opener. <laughs> that was a joke. It's supposed to be funny. <laughs> no. Your free will. You still have free will. Charles Templeton, a guy who had crusades, 30,000 people weekly for 10 years, leading how many thousands to Christ, and then saying, no, I don't buy it. And with the money, with too much pride and arrogance, saying I know more than God does. Let me just make this point here. Maybe you have strong convictions, and your convictions do not line up with this book. Well, let me tell you something. You're wrong. The book is right. Good place for an amen. Amen. And there's issues that you're going to come across in your life where you're going to have a problem with it. I don't want to do that. I don't believe that. Well, then you're wrong and the Bible's right. And that's what the scriptures clearly say. And there's a warning at the end of the Bible that says, be careful. Don't add anything to, don't take anything away from the words of this book. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That's what we're talking about this morning. The doctrine of predestination and the strongly held views that people have and there's still some watching online or sitting right here that are thinking, I don't care what you say, Dwight, I'm still a Calvinist and I'm still holding to eternal security. Well, Calvary Chapel believes in eternal security. But that's just one chapter and it's not what the word of God has to say about the entire issue. It presents another forms as far as free will and acceptance and rejection. It doesn't just put it down and say this is the way it is, the Calvinistic way. And that's why I ask you to be open to both, both sides of it. And being able to love each other when all is said and done at the end of the day, I'm still a Calvinist, or I'm still an Arminianist. And... Um, I'm just going to say, I don't care what you are, I love you anyway. How's that sound? Sound pretty good for a t-shirt? That's, that's, a, um, that's what the, really the debate is all the, the perseverance of the saints and eternal security. There's been so many pastors that have been in this pulpit that strongly endorse, and I agree with them, that... Um, you're eternally secure. And at the same time, that's not the whole story. And if you can get that out of our Bible study this morning, then we'll accomplish what I believe Chuck Water accomplished with this book that he put out here, called Calvinism, Arminianism, and the Word of God. Um, all right. There's the article on Charles Templeton. And uh, it was in my 
buried in my notes. I'm just going to read the first paragraph here. As many of you know, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton were evangelists who rose to fame in the 40s. Graham, of course, is still an evangelist. Earlier in their career, they were friends, close friends. Many have said Templeton was one that everyone thought was going to overturn the world with the gospel. However, Templeton ended up leaving the Christian faith. Just like Ephesus, he didn't lose it, he left it. Leaving the Christian faith, even eventually becoming an atheist. In 1982, though still an atheist, he said of Billy Graham, there is no uh, fringing in him. He believes what he believes with an invincible innocence. He is the only mass evangelist I would trust. Templeton died um, at the age of 86 in 2001, and he wrote what I considered to be one of the most heartbreaking books ever published, Farewell to God. And I'll just leave that with that and have you turn with me. Let's see, three... I want to tell you a little bit about John, John Calvin and Calvinism. Um, here's the entire book, very thick. What love is this? And I think that sums it up. But um, I want to. Re- this is an excerpt from the bigger book here, and it's called John Calvin's Tyrannical Kingdom, and he was from Geneva. Um, to say he was. Obnoxious is one thing. To say he was um, an unbelievable control freak would be an understatement. Um, What he said went, period. And I'm going to give you one example of a story of a man that he came to despise whose name is, and I'm going to find it here in a second, his name is... Michael Servetus, S-E-R-V-E-T-U-S. He did not live in Geneva. He lived in um, Switzerland, however. And he was, I get letters all the time. But this guy would write Calvin on a daily basis. Drove Calvin crazy. And some of the things he said he agreed with and a lot of it, he had had just too much with this. And he's, he had some doctrines that were off the wall, uh, just so that you're aware of this guy named Michael. However, he was right about some things that God does not predestine souls to hell and that God is love. And um, the big debate came over um, when he accused Calvin um, I, Calvin accused Servetus of um, being against infant baptism. In other words, Calvinism believes in infant baptism, and this guy called Michael Service did not, and he called him out on it as part of salvation. Well, after years of receiving letters from this guy, he's on a trip, and he makes his way through um, Calvin's town, where he was living, in Geneva. And word got out. 
that this guy was in town. So what does Calvin do? He hunts him down. And I'm just going to read. I do not believe that John Calvin was saved, and you'll understand why I make that that statement after I read what I'm about to read to you. This is just one man. Um, uh, I'm just going to call him Michael because I can hard read his last name. He wrote at least 30 unwelcoming letters to Calvin, which must have irritated the latter greatly. On February 13, 1546, Calvin wrote to Farrell, Servetus has just sent me a long volume of his ragings. If I consent, he will come here, but I will not give my word, for should he come, if my authority is of any avail, and he considered himself to be the ruler of Geneva, Switzerland, the head, head hog, I will not suffer him to get out alive. Servitude made that mistake of passing through Geneva seven years later on the way to Naples, and he was recognized when he attended church, probably out of fear of being arrested for non-attendance. Yeah. If you if you lived in Calvinstown and you didn't go to church, you got arrested. I'm see who's not here this morning. <laughs> John, you're still here. Okay, okay, so. Uh, where, where's Lee? I don't see Lee. Yeah, where's Lee? I'll talk to him later. <laughs> I'm trying to just show you just what a tyrant. That's why he called him tyrannical. This is Dave Hunt. Then he says, um, by someone who saw him through his disguise and notified Calvin, who in turn ordered his arrest. Early in the trial, which lasted two months, Calvin wrote to Farrell, who probably was the judge or whatever. He says, I hope the sentence of death will be passed upon him. Obviously, if the God one believes in predestined billions to a burning hell, all of whom he could rescue, then to burn at the stake a totally depraved heretic would seem quite mild and easily justifiable. The logic, however, seems somehow to escape the many of today's evangelical Christians who admire the man and call themselves Calvinists. The indictment drawn up by Calvin's lawyers, contained 38 charges supported by quotations from Mike Servetus' writings. Calvin personally appeared in court as the accuser and chief witness for the prosecution. Calvin's personal reports of the trial uh, matched Servetus' railings and such um, uh, things, calling him a dirty dog, a snout, so on and so forth. Uh, Geneva Council consulted the churches of Protestant Switzerland, and six weeks later, their reply was received. Servetus should be condemned and not executed. Nevertheless, under Calvin's leadership, he was sentenced to death on two counts of heresy, Unitarianism and... uh, the rejection of infant baptism. Durant gives the horrifying details. He asked, this is Michael, the guy who's gonna die, 
he asked to be beheaded rather than burned. Calvin was inclined to support the idea, but the aged pharaoh removed him from such tolerance and the council voted that servitude should be burned alive. The sentence was carried out the next morning, October 17, 1553. On the way to the burning, Pharaoh uh, importuned servitude to earn divine mercy by confessing the crime of heresy. According to Pharaoh, which is infant baptism, a condemned man replied, I'm not guilty. I have not merited death. And he besought God to pardon his accusers. He was fastened to the stake by iron chains and his last book was bound to his side where the flames, when the flames reached his face, he shrieked with agony and after an hour of burning, he died. That's the real John Calvin. And uh, it's all documented in this book. I'll hold it up. This is an excerpt from this book here. And the first time I heard this story, it totally blew my mind. And I do not believe the man is saved. I don't believe a born-again Christian would um, have that attitude and want to take it a step further to have a quick death instead of having burn at the stake for an hour. I don't believe he was saved. And um, I believe his doctrines are heretical, especially when it comes to predestination, that God would predestine any person to hell. And so, realizing that this was going to be, I I told in the the staff, I said, well, when's the last time you heard me say, I don't want to do a Bible study? And they said, never. I said, I really don't want to do this one. This is the most divisive doctrine in the Bible. And uh, people have their claws and their hands and their feet on one side or the other. And what the truth is, both are true. Parts of both are true. But I wanted to, you know, in closing, and remember, um, well, we need to go back to Ephesians, and I just need to show you that the whole context of our chapter this morning is about predestination, and um, we made it uh, through two verses. So, I don't know. I know NFL starts today, but you know, you don't have to set your priorities. <laughs> no, I'm just gonna read to the end so that you can see where the emphasis lies. Having, verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us acceptable and in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, in whom we have been obtained an inheritance being 
predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that he who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession and praise of his glory. And you say, Dwight, it's clear enough. It says we've, we've been sealed. How can you be unsealed? And so the debate goes on and on and on. I'll leave you with one thought that first got me thinking about this. I won't have you turn to it. I'll just, you're all familiar with it. It's the parable of the sower. And the sower went out to sow the seed, and we know that the seed is the word of God. First part of it fell on a stony ground. What happened? A bird came and ate it, took, took the seed away. Later on in chapter Matthew 13, we read that the bird was the devil or um, a demon himself that stole the word away, and then it says, unless he would be saved. So the word went out, but it got taken away, and it clearly says he's not saved. Now the second one is more interesting. This seed fell on um, uh, the story ground, or the ground where it didn't have enough root. And it said this person heard the word and received it with joy. So he hears the gospel, he receives it with joy, and then it says, but in time of temptation, he got tempted. What was the first thing that happened to Jesus after he was baptized? He was tempted. What's the first thing that happens after a person hears the gospel? My name can be put into the book of life. Jesus washes away my sin. Well, you can be like the thief on the cross and not say nothing and still be saved. And that's what happens. And so what arose in my mind as I thought this through, he heard the word, he received the word, but then he got tempted like Jesus was tempted and he failed the temptation and he fell away. Here's my closing question to you. Was he saved during the time that he received the word with joy until he was tempted and fell away? Think it through. Make up your own mind. I know what I think about it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But I think there's temptations that'll try to draw you away from that. But are you saved during that time? I would say absolutely yes. And... Um, I promised you with a study like this, as controversial as it is, I'm going to reread what we opened with, and that is, it's not easy to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us on these matters. It seems that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are like two parallel lines that do not seem to interconnect with our finite minds. And this explains a lot to me. God's ways are past finding out, Romans 11. And the Bible warns us not to lean upon our own understanding, like John Calvin. To say what God says in the Bible, no more, no less, it's not always easy, comfortable, or completely understandable. 
But scripture tells us that the wisdom from above will be loving and kind toward all, seeking the unity of the believers, not trying to find ways to divide and separate from one another. May God help us to love each other and to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Jesus Christ has forgiven us. In difficult doctrinal matters, may we have gracious attitudes and humble hearts desiring most of all to please him who has called us to serve him in the body of Christ. Discussion? Yep, yes. Disagreements? Yes. Division? No. Good place to say amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you that we've got to be careful not just to read um, one section and make a whole doctrine on it without considering what your word says on the whole counsel of God on certain doctrinal issues. I hope we can leave this morning with a better understanding of predestination and what the Bible has to say about all of it. And um, we thank you and we just commit now the teaching of your word to you. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.